Bendy. Hello and welcome back to the Waldy and Bendy Christmas and New Year special, the podcast they could not stop. Now, in part one, we visited Bendy on his farm to look at his trees. We talked about Hogarth and whether he'd have voted for Brexit or not. And then we went round the old master sales in London, trying to guess what they might fetch. And if you haven't heard all that, don't worry, because today's another day. And we've got a whole new podcast for you, packed with stuff. And I'm still Waldy, art critic of the Sunday Times. Bendy is still Bendy, art world sleuth, man about town. Uh, and as it's the Christmas New Year special, uh, we have an important duty to fulfil, I think, on this podcast. Uh, we need to look back on the year we've just had, and we need to give it some marks. The Go, Bendy. The Waldy and Bendy Awards are back. Before we get down to the details, it's been a strange old year, hasn't it? Uh, I mean, we thought we thought it was all over, but then it keeps coming back, right? I know. And every time there's a lockdown, it seems to coincide with us doing a podcast. So I'm wondering if there's a cause and effect thing here, Waldy. We should we should probably take a a really prolonged vow of silence next year, and then hoping this bloody pandemic will go away. Yeah, you, you reckon we're to blame for it coming yep. back all the time? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's been strange because. Uh, I was really hopeful halfway through the year, you know, I mean, it stopped, um, all the galleries opened up again, things began to feel pretty normal, and there was some very, very good shows, and, and it, suddenly this year felt as if it, it had legs and was going to be a good one, but then um, this damn thing uh, squeaked, squeaked back, and, and here we are again, so a very strange year. Uh, anyway, enough of the generalizations. Let's get down to the real business here, Bendy, which is uh, deciding what was good in 2021 and what was bad. Because, yes, it's time to hand out the Wendy's, the Art World Awards that really count. Now, we've got various categories, Bendy. Uh, we're going to start with that most prestigious of all our gongs, and that is, of course, the Up Pompeii Award for the most terrible thing to happen in the art world in 2021. Now, I know we're spoiled for choice this year, Bendy, but I've managed to get it down to a short list of three. So uh, let's go through them. And the first one is, of course, NFTs, Bendy. Two words, NFTs, Bendy. Three letters to strike fear in the heart of any art lover, don't you think? Yeah, I still can't quite get my head around them. We we did our best to explain what they were in a previous episode, didn't we? When we were watching that some of the huge prices these NFTs were making. They seem to be making huge prices still. So you're my confident prediction that this would all be a puff of air and would disappear very fast. It's not quite yet <laughs> come to pass. I mean, I'm, I have everything no. crossed that NFTs will still die death because I think they're everything that's wrong with the art world. Um, but but where are we? Have you have you bought one yet? No, of course I haven't. Uh, I spend my whole time complaining about them. <laughs> I mean, it is let's just very quickly just say what is bad about them, right? And it's and for me, it's not it's not the digital art per se you know i i don't like much digital art but i'm sure there's you know good examples of it it's that's not the problem the problem is this absurd idea that somehow what you're really buying when you buy an nft is ownership of something that only exists in a kind of technical form on the internet and that you can't really hold it you don't have it it's not really yours and all you've really got is this weird collecting feeling that it belongs to you that's crazy isn't it it's crazy especially when the actual image itself can be easily reproduced by anyone anywhere else in the world so 
I just don't understand what you have ownership of. People have said, well, you have bragging rights. And, uh, you know, for God's sake, who wants to brag about owning a JPEG that you 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 spaffed a million quid on? I just, I, I, that's not something I would ever want to admit to, yet alone brag about. Yeah. Uh, but I hear, I see in the papers that people are buying um, as Christmas gifts, they're buying NFTs and they're, they're buying, you know, what they call real estate in, in the metaverse. So you, you can buy a bit of land somewhere. But the thing is, this is all limitless. It's infinite. So I don't understand what there is to buy. Now, I have to say, money for digital artists, good, great. Yep, all agreed. very keen for money for artists to make money. I think they've slightly stolen agreed. the, I think they've slightly gone for the wrong business model here because they're trying to sort of uh, create the value in the one one sort of coded unique object at the same time as effectively letting go of creative control of, over the image. Um, you know, for example, when the new James Bond film came out, uh, well, the, va the value was not in some sort of special coded imprint of the film. The value is in managing the, the rights as they release it. Um, so mm -hmm. I think artists actually need to come up with a better business model. But I can I say one brief thing before we move on? I want to shower special grumpy bendy contempt on one particular sector of the nft world and that is the public museums who are jumping on the bandwagon and trying to cash in have, have you seen some of these no no that's past me by thank god well the terrible. british museum is trying to make an nft out of you know hawkside great wave uh, and the most egregious example i thought was came from um the whitworth gallery manchester, in manchester. who, who mm. should know better uh, they have uh taken one of their most famous items a william william blake ancient of days that picture of, of god sort of bending down to create the world and they have decided to make an uh, an nft out of it and there was a little video of the director of the whitworth alistair hudson saying that the reason for doing this was and i quote we wanted to redistribute the wealth of our collections in the most democratic way and this technology nfts offers the opportunity to open up the collections and the way they worked in the world to the broadest possible audience well no <laughs> how does how does uh, monetizing a public collection which the public already owns and how does selling it back to them how is that democratic how is that opening it up it's in fact it's it's throwing restrictions around mm. it, it? it's uh, confusing two things isn't it it's confusing the actual digital nature of the thing you're selling fine no problem there with the nft nature of it where people are bidding against each other to raise the price to get it as high as possible and look look this is selling snake oil you know this is this is such a con it is even forced a few lines of Karl Marx into my brain to be honest with you <laughs> at the thought of all this disgusting rampant capitalism you know that great line by Karl Marx in the in the communist manifesto all that is solid turns to air all that is sacred is profaned I mean that's the stage we've got to isn't it that when you're selling nothing basically except selling to people their own sense of owning something when they don't actually own it i mean that is everything solid uh, turning to air isn't it i yeah. mean it's a really sad moment and a grim moment a horrible moment i absolutely hate it so that's nfts that's a very good line though i think um i don't often agree with marx or you uh, but you've got two in one there and i think we before we move on we say to people if you would like to buy a work of art for someone for christmas or even an, indeed a gift going forward go and find a real artist and buy a real object put it on your wall and cherish it absolutely absolutely well in a sort of similar vein um the second uh shortlisted contender for the up pompey award for the most terrible thing to happen in the art world this year the turner prize this year oh my god the turner prize this year 
look, the Turner Prize, it's always controversial. Everybody always gets annoyed by some aspect of it, right? Um, that's part of the territory. But what it's always done in the past is at least give you some kind of sense of what's going on in the art world. So you might mm -hmm. not like it, but basically once a year, this stuff pops up and you get, you're brought up to date at least with what's happening. This year, in an absolutely dismal display of, of, of connivance, I think, they decided to put five collectives onto the shortlist. Now, collectives are incredibly trendy at the moment in art. So there's this big exhibition coming up in Germany called the Castle Documenta, being curated by uh, an Indonesian collective. And it's based apparently on the way that... Um, that they store rice in, in Indonesia and the, the way that everything is sort of shared out. So there's this, this whole underpinning of a collective desire to do things. And basically it's an argument against the idea of a single person being an artist. You've got a bunch of people doing it uh, and that makes them good. Okay, I can see how one collective might possibly feature in the shortlist for the Turner Prize, but they've chosen five. And the implication is that the five best things that happened in British art this year was, was the arrival of these five collectives, all of whom were, were as it were, the top five of British art. Mm -hmm. See, what I don't like about that, apart from the fact that I don't like collectives much, um, because usually they're deceitful. There's usually one person in any case leading them all and the rest just follow. So there's that. But worse than that is the connivance of it, this pretense somehow that you've got this kind of democratic decision when the only way they could have arrived at these five collectives is if they sat down at this jury and decided to put a phony list together of things um, and, and pretend it's something which is to say a reflection of art in Britain when actually it's just a contrivance to get attention and an argument. That really annoyed me and the show was dismal as well. Okay. Well, I didn't see it. Well, so I'm, I'm afraid I can't really comment. I do, are we a collective? I suppose no, we are. No, we're a duo. Well, producer Taylor leads and we just follow. Yeah. So well, I think, true. yeah, we could well, probably enter. The, why don't we enter next year? The Turner Prize. Sound art, collective sound art, Waldy and Bindi. Yeah, but well, we could be, uh, we could certainly do that. We could be an NFT. Yeah. Um, in this dismal world we live in, there's, there's nothing we couldn't be, I guess. I guess you're right. Let, let's move on then. Okay, you, you didn't see it. Let me take it from me. It was dismal. It was ghastly and, and well worthy of the shortlist. So my third one, you see, you see, we, we've kind of done it already, but let's just very, very briefly. This is the Up Pompeii Award for the most terrible thing to happen in the art world. I have to nominate the Hogarth Show at Tate Britain. I know mm. the last podcast, we did loads of stuff on it. Just very briefly, it mm. was a fantastic collection of paintings ruined by the captions. It descended in parts, I think, to uh, what we might call performative curation. And I, perhaps that's the way things are going these days. But um, I thought Hogarth was slightly overshadowed in the end and rather unfairly. But as I said in part one, you know, I'm all in favour of of um, what we describe sometimes as, as woke art history. So I generally, I think it's a good thing. I think um, I can see why you might have put uh, the Hogarth show on the shortlist here. But uh, frankly, it, it just is dwarfed by everything NFT to me and um, yeah. yeah I'm not going to disagree with you so let, let's together as a collective let's move towards a very swift resolution of that one so it's official isn't it Bindi the up Pompeii award for the most terrible thing to happen in the art world this year goes to NFTs right yeah and can I make a very brief plug because I was on BBC Radio 4 talking about NFTs as a, a program with um, lovely David Aronovich and I was uh, talking to him it's called the briefing room um, and they had someone pro NFTs and they had uh, me very much anti. Um, mm. And we'll, we'll come back in, what, should we come back in a decade's time and basically cry into our soup when everything is an NFT? And we basically, we missed out 
on the greatest money-making uh, scam ever. Yeah, scam is their operative word. Well, let's hope that doesn't happen. Let's move on before I burst into tears, uh, Benji, <laughs> at the thought of all that. Mind you, it's not all good news yet because we've oh. still got the um, the next award coming up, amongst the most prestigious of the Wendy's, indeed, and that is the um, Worst Museum During COVID Award. Oh. Now, Bendy, this is something we've talked about a lot during the podcasts. Again, not many museums came out of it with great credit, but um, let, let's just decide on who was worst, really. I'm going to kick off with, with the Tate. For all sorts of reasons, Tate was lousy during COVID. They, for a start, seemed never to be clear when they were going to reopen. When they did shows did reopen, it was never clear what it, where you're meant to go in there, what you're meant to see. So the sort of COVID threw them completely off balance and they were useless during it. But badly, they sacked a whole load of people. There were all sorts of complaints about it, even though they were getting shovel loads of cash from the government. They still managed to shed so much of their important support staff. And you and I know that when you go to Tate Modern in particular, the support staff is what counts. You know, it's the people who show you around. It's the people working in the cloakrooms. It's the people in the cafes. It's the people in the bookshops. It's not the curators swanning around who never lose their jobs. Um, and there were some distinctly bad decisions made. That decision to cancel the um, Philip Guston exhibition for absurd reasons, that was bad. And then this thing still hammering on at Tate Britain about the awful paintings in the restaurant. You know, the, the Rex Whistler paintings, which feature disgusting scenes of, of little black kids chained up uh, for the entertainment of the 18th century, 19th century societies around them. They should have been painted over a long time ago. All those things add up, I think, to just a really poor performance from the Tate. What do you think? Uh, well, poor Tate. Um, <laughs> we better give him a rest. I thought the saddest thing was, and they weren't alone in doing this, the uh, decision to sack lots of people. And they, they, and in fact, from what I understand, many curators were, were threatened too. And there's been a bit of a... Um, a rushed reorganization in the curatorial department re resulting in even fewer expert voices at, at Tate and there weren't there weren't that many in the first place so like many organizations they did sort of panic and rush into this we must sack lots of people thing and then of course I mean at the moment we're in notwithstanding with COVID making a flare up again actually in the summer at least everybody flocked back and, and was desperate to get back to the museums like never before so uh, it turned out they didn't really need to sack so many people. But one of the most egregious examples of this was the National Trust, who who got rid of 1,700 members of staff, and yet because they thought that you know financial Armageddon was going to hit them, and yet actually they ended the year uh, richer than they've ever been, with more money coming uh, in from more sources. So um, we say to the directors of some of these institutions who who panicked, we say we sympathise, uh, but you sometimes overreacted, and that's a great shame. Mm. Well, absolutely. It's a story in all our all our choices, I think, for the, um, the the worst museum during COVID. Very quickly, there's one in the middle, though, the National Portrait Gallery. Now, they're in there because basically they closed, you know, that instead of being around at a time when the nation needed guidance, needed a national museum to stand up and count and, and, and lead us through these terrible COVID times, the National Portrait Gallery closed down for one of those awful cosmetic rebuilds that last for years and years and years cost zillions of pounds and frankly nobody really needs so it's a dereliction of duty as far as i'm concerned and that's why i think they deserve definitely to be on the worst museum during covid uh, list well 
uh, I think it's, I agree with you, very regrettable that they closed. I still can't quite see the wisdom of it. I'd be interested to know, actually, to what extent um, the pandemic and the various financial upheavals will risk making that project last uh, even longer. Mm. Um, but I thought, you know, COVID was, uh, is our sort of collectively, it's our sort of World War II, isn't it? For, for, for our mm. generations. And I thought if there was one museum in the country that needed to be on hand to to take an active role in that, it was the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, they did mm. do, a, it was a photography project, which I think was still here or holds, hold still, which invited, you know, punters out there to send in photos they've taken. Some of them are really good. Um, you can see them online, it's a bit of a clunky website, but some really good photographs taken by members of the public. But as far as I can see, uh, that's it. No, no records of anything. There's no painters going out there and being commissioned. So what a shame. So, dismal. Closed. Dismal. Shouldn't have been closed. Uh, couldn't agree more. It was a very, very poor showing for the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it shows you what happens when you spend all that money and all that time on art thinking things are going to be great. And yet reality comes and bites you in the bum and, and things aren't great, you know, and that's that's one of the things that COVID has done. I think it just showed up all the problems that were there in the art world all along, you know, the overspendings, the lavishing of stuff on huge blockbuster exhibitions and all that stuff. All of it has come back to bite them, hasn't it? But let's move on because the third shortlisted museum uh, is the V&A. Now, you see, the V&A has had a terrible old COVID um, and still having a terrible old COVID. It's been deeply disappointing, I think. Uh, have you got any views on that? I haven't been, obviously. I have. I've heard stuff about the usual rounds of sacking. I, I don't. Perhaps you'll you'll enlighten me. But I have to say, disclose my uh, position up front. I, you know, I quite like Tristram Hunt. So, and I appreciate he's because the V&A is not an easy museum to to manage at the best of times, mm. because it's a sort of conglomeration of so many disciplines and departments and things. Mm. So, um, I have I have some sympathy with him. I quite like Tristram Hunt, but I don't think this is down to Tristram Hunt. I think there are other forces at work um, on the V&A board that might possibly be squeezing things. I've had a couple of letters from very upset curators and things. I mean, listen, they've got rid of a generation of knowledgeable curators, okay? Just slam them out the door. They've got rid of the libraries that belonged to you know they've got this plan to build a kind of mega library of all the contents of the vna so that's all the specialist departments the asian department the glassware department the porcelain department the, you know all the different fabulous little places at the vna they all used to have their own libraries but now all that's being transferred to some mega library out, out in the sticks, which apparently there's not enough space for everything there already. But more, more importantly, it means that, you know, for the last few months, things have been sitting in boxes and no one can get any access to them. And then there is this terrible building thing going on. You know, the V&A is opening these new branches. There's one in East End. There's talk of one in China. This whole franchise idea where museums think they're going to behave like McDonald's and open a branch everywhere and be successful. You know, every time you open a new branch somewhere, that sucks up money and, and resources from your, your mother load, your mothership, mm -hmm. and leaves it impoverished. And as far as I can see, you know, the, the V&A is basically in a perilous state now, having badly managed itself during the whole COVID thing, and, and having overexpanded in, in its ambitions to open new branches here and there. It does seem to me to have been badly managed. Um, and all the problems that we've noticed in, in other places are, are problems here too. So I think it deserves to be on the short list. The question is, is it the very worst one? That's what I put to you. Well, um, 
No, I think there can only be one winner because at least at least Tate and VNA, at least they've tried. Mm. It's you know, huge challenges facing the museum sector, but I think at least they were open and you can guess what I think should be the winner. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. At least they were there. For all the problematics of it, they didn't run away and disappear and just spend money behind the scenes, which is what the National Portrait Gallery did. So whereas one on this, Bendy, the uh, worst museum during COVID award, uh, that's going to go to the National Portrait Gallery. Anyway, we can't just be bad news, guys, Bendy. You're an optimistic fellow. I can see you now. Your big <laughs> beaming Scottish face. It's beautiful to, to watch. And therefore, it's, it's right that we, we have some positivity in this as well. So, okay, those are the worst reasons. What are the best ones? Who's been best during COVID for you? Oh, so many to choose from. I mean, most of them have done such a terrific job in, in basically performing sort of handbrake turns and, and putting all their efforts online and being uh, outward facing. So... That was that was lovely to see. In fact, well, I thought I would ask some of our listeners to to just because there have been so many good examples of good practice during COVID. I asked some of our listeners to just let us know um, what they've been impressed with during the lockdown. I, I've got a few here. Shall I just yeah. rattle through them quickly? Go before on. We come I mean, on to we, our shortlist. We definitely want to hear from the listeners. Yeah. Well, um, uh, a long-time listener, Alan O'Neill from Ireland. Hello, Alan. He made it uh, in a brief uh, pause of hostilities. He made it out to Madrid. And he said he went for his first time in Madrid this year. Needless to say, went to the best art gallery in the world, the Prado. And guess what, Wildy? Just for us, he went in particular to the Van Dyck Room and feasted on his portrait of his friend Martin Rickert, which we've featured on the podcast before. Um, uh, Sheila Page, um, well, a big round of applause to the Frick in New York. for the, They had a lovely series of videos called Cocktails with a Curator. Did you see any of those? Yes, we did. We did. I, I liked those. Those were good, yes. But the Frick was closed as well, remember, for a big rebuild. Uh, well, uh, a bad mark for that, but otherwise pretty good. Um, Amanda Mackey wanted to praise the Leighton House Museum in London, who, she says, during lockdown did a wonderful uh, series of free Zoom art courses um, with Aisha Gamiat, the artist, and uh, she describes that as a lifesaver in our house during lockdown. And I've got many other examples. Museums have, and, and the staff within them have made such a good effort on the whole, and we say big round of applause to you for um, helping us all through COVID. Mm. Let's move on to the sh your shortlist. Mm. That's, that's wonderful to hear that from the people, as it were. Yeah, let's, let's keep this short then. But um, listen, I'm going to mention Tate Liverpool, which will surprise you because you know how I am with the Tate. Any chance to give them a banging, I'll bang them. But <laughs> Tate Liverpool is, for me, by far the best of the franchises. It's a really interesting little place up there in Liverpool that always puts on rousing shows. And this year, they have put on lots of stimulating exhibitions. Whatever else has been happening at the Tate, Tate Liverpool seems to go its own way, as if as if there's something about Liverpool that makes you independent of the rest of them. And so there was like a fantastic Lucy McKenzie exhibition, which might even still be on now. Um, which you just know would never be put on in, in London. It would never be put on at Tate, Tate Modern, but which gets shown at, at Tate Liverpool. And because they're neither meant to be British nor are they meant to be modern, they're just meant to be good. There's none of that, that schizophrenia that you feel elsewhere in the Tate Empire. You can just go up there, you'll know you'll see some good work. It's a fabulous place, by the way, as you know, right next to the River Mersey there with that beautiful fresh wind always blowing through it. Lovely historic building. And they put on good shows with an air of independence. And this year, I have enjoyed more shows at, at Tate Liverpool than anywhere else. So I am going to nominate Tate Liverpool as one of the best museums during the COVID crisis. Marvellous. And did you know, Wildy, that Tate Liverpool is also uh, a leader in Britain in things like disabled access? 
and mm. in making themselves friendly and welcoming for people on the autistic spectrum, for example. So they, they mm. really take that seriously there. And I think that is uh, to be praised. Absolutely. Well done, Take Liverpool. Now, you've got one that I haven't been to. You told me a lot about it. It's in Bishop Auckland, I believe. Ah, yes, this is, I, th I think, in the UK. It's actually the only new museum to have opened last year during COVID. And that in itself was quite an achievement. This is the Spanish gallery in Bishop Auckland. Uh, and it is the, um, the first gallery in the UK dedicated to the art, history and culture of Spain. It is the passion project of a financier called uh, Jonathan Ruffer, who I don't know if you remember a while ago, the Church of England decided to sell uh, Auckland Castle and that an amazing series of 12 Zerberand paintings mm. from the dining room, the, the apostles. Uh, well, he stepped in to buy that. And then that project sort of snowballed and he loves Spanish art. And he decided to create a new gallery in Bishop Auckland. It's a fantastic, architecturally brilliant space uh, in an old bank building. And uh, it opened this year and the collection is really good. And they've got all sorts of lovely loans as well. So Velasquez, Murillo, it's all there. El Greco, mm. really good to see. And um, I thought that was quite a beautifully presented. And I have to say, Radi, uh, I didn't realize this at the time, but on the top floor of this building, there's a special exhibition space, um, which has been taken over by a company called Factum Arte or the Factum Foundation. Have you come across them? Yeah, yeah, I they, have. They yeah. make these facsimiles. Facsimiles, of, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, really good and, facsimiles, I believe. Well, uh, I used to look at them and think, you know, good effort, A for effort, but you're not fooling me in my, you know, my great connoisseurial eye. Mm. But I went to this exhibition on the top floor and I didn't actually read the bump when I went in and I didn't realise that everything there on that top floor was a facsimile. Mm. So I assume that the, the marble sarcophagus in the middle um, on a beautiful brick floor was all original and all the wood carvings were all original and the and the beautiful um, uh, grenade and tiles were all original actually everything everything is a facsimile and there were some paintings there which i have to say would have fooled me from more than two centimeters away so i thought that was astonishing and i, I just wanted to get your view actually because it's um I think it opens up an interesting new front in our world because, you know, the, there's always been a worth in having the original object compared to, say, a copy or up until now, any other form of reproduction, because visually it was the best and most faithful, you know, view of what the artist made. But now, uh, if you can have a Mona Lisa on your wall, as good visually to look at as the actual Mona Lisa for, I don't know, say 5,000 quid, doesn't that slightly change the rules of our game a bit? Um, yes, it does. God, I don't know how comfortable I feel with that, actually, Bendy. Um, first of all, with regards to the actual museum, fantastic. Sounds great. There is no one I love more than Zorbaran. Really wonderful painter. And that series of the Apostles is fabulous. So pleased there's a museum devoted to Spanish art. But I guess, you know, the, the, the logical side of me says, look, this is just like producing an edition of Prince, right? So Rembrandt would make an etching and then you produce a hundred prints of it and everybody would get one and it would still be an original Rembrandt and that's fine, right? There's something about the whole facsimile business which, I don't know, interrupts that, that, that process. And I think if you've got, I mean, you said they're like wooden, wooden things in this as well, or wooden carvings, but presumably they're not made of wood, right? They're made out of resin or whatever. Some sort of 3D printed resin, yeah. Yeah, 3D printed resin. 
you see that becomes a problem for me because i'm a great believer in i don't know truth to materials truth has its own agency truth means something in art so i would be reluctant to wholeheartedly welcome this sort of stuff um but i do believe you that they're that they're getting better and better the facsimiles are getting better and uh, yes of course so if you if you want to have something on your wall that um, looks like something else um why not you know i remember when i went to view, interview john richardson back in the days when i was making picasso films with him and he lived in this fantastic loft on fifth avenue um, which he'd made to look like a Louis Sixteenth palazzo in, in France. Um, there were loads of Picassos all over the place, right? And you go in there and you go, wow, look at that, that's a Picasso, Picasso. But they were all replicas because over the years, John had fallen on hard times. He had to sell all of them. And every time he sold one, he'd make a replica and there it was. Mm -hmm. um, so they function well enough, I guess. But yes, oh, I don't know. Am I some kind of awful modernist communist at heart? I like things to be what they look as if they are. Yeah. Well, I don't suppose we can, we can't, we can't deride NFTs for claiming to be an original when they're not. And yet somehow say we're happy with the facsimile of the Mona Lisa. But I, I just think it's what the, the technology is extraordinary. So mm. look, that's good. And take Liverpool's good. But listen, the best museum during the COVID has to be right. The National Gallery in London, uh, certainly for me. You know, it did everything right. It held on to its staff and looked after its staff. It made things accessible as soon as it could. It was like the last one to close, the first one to open. Um, it put on fantastic shows, despite all the difficulties of putting on shows. And it just oozed a kind of classy nobility as if it knew what was going on and was doing something for the nation. Even their website, which started out a bit wonky, eventually became really good, I think. So I would feel pretty confident about saying that for me, the best museum during COVID was the National Gallery. What about you? Oh, I agree entirely. I mean, I suppose we should say the National Gallery does, you know, it does have a little bit more uh, uh, meat on the bone in terms of its finances to get it through periods like this. But that notwithstanding, uh, I thought it just took a real position of leadership in the museum sector. And, and I was just so pleased because I'm quite... Uh, nerdy about these things. I like going through museum accounts, Meldy. And I was so yeah. pleased when I came across the National Gallery's most recent accounts and read that during the pandemic, they had not laid off a single member of staff. Uh, I just thought that was such a, a great thing to do. And we say to everyone there, well done, and to Gabriele Finaldi, well done. Yeah, absolutely. Unanimous winner then, best museum during COVID, the National Gallery in London. Uh, but since we're on the good news, Bendy, let's, let's, let's still stay good with um, best exhibition of the year. Uh, obviously, it's been basically best exhibition of half a year because it all began a bit slowly, didn't it? But um, I've seen some, some cracking shows and I'd like to nominate, uh, to start with, the Bellotto show at the National Gallery, since we were with the National Gallery, which was an eye-opener, uh, but brilliant, dramatic, small, but so involving, I thought. Yeah, and wonderful for its smallness and simplicity. You know, one room, five paintings, but my goodness, what five paintings they are. To, to reassemble those mid-pandemic for the first time since Bellotto painted these amazing views of Königstein Fortress back in the 1758, I think. They'd never been together since they were dispersed. I thought that was a great achievement. And it was just so nice to be, you know, allowed to get involved with the pictures without any, you know, there was no over-the-top curation saying, look at this and look at that, and what pictures they are. I mean, there are, Bellotto, I don't know how you rank him with other 
contemporaries, people like Canaletto and Guardi and what have you. Um, but I, I think he's head and shoulders above them, actually. And what I loved uh, about, you know, immersing myself in those five paintings was not just their topographical brilliance, but the way he weaves in little narratives every everywhere you look. Things, you know, like the, the, the poor woman struggling up to this great fortress with a load on her back and she's got bare feet and the feet are dirty. And it, it just... Everywhere you look is, is a wonderful detail. The laundry on the washing line, which was painted just slightly off perpendicular, so you knew there was a little bit of a breeze. Magic stuff. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, but of course, people people listen to this, Bendy, they can see all these pictures uh, at zczfilms.com, uh, where we've got our special podcast pages. It's important to be able to see them, so so, so do go to that, folks, if you can. But um, but yes. Now, listen, Bellotto is, is such an interesting character and art isn't he because obviously being the the nephew of Canaletto he had to go through his career basically being compared with his uncle usually thought of as a lesser figure than, than Canaletto from Venice because Canaletto was so famous and indeed I mean he was called Canaletto wasn't he rather confusingly in all sorts of places as well where he worked I mean having he had to sort of leave Venice and go across the rest of Europe uh, to have a career for himself independent of his uncle but they still called him Canaletto and as I'm particularly interested in him because he ended up in Poland as you know and although these paintings at the National Gallery were were ones that he painted when he was in Germany in the Königstein Castle so one of these sort of five amazing views of this castle on a rock he was working for the Saxon elector at the time who, who was going to become king of Poland so when these Königstein royals were kicked out of Germany and they ended up in Poland he went to Poland it was his paintings that were very famously were used as a model for the rebuilding of the old town in Warsaw in Warszawa after the Nazis blitzed and bombed the center of old Warsaw after the war, the Poles got together and rebuilt the whole old town again, inch perfectly. I was there a couple of weeks ago to see it, by the way. Uh, and they did it mostly on the paintings of Bellotto, based on the accuracy, the sheer architectural accuracy of his pictures. So there's all that. Uh, I didn't know yes, that. He was a skillful old man, wasn't he? I mean, I love the little details of the figures. You'll see Polish characters, by the way. If you look into the interiors of the castle, you'll see some chaps with big moustaches and hair back from the forehead. And those are Poles, you know, Poles <laughs> wondering about Koningstein Castle. See, what I think he brings that even the great Canaletto, I love Canaletto, right? But, but what Bellotto has, I think, is weather, you know, weather and light, the sort of naturalistic subtleties. Mostly in Canaletto, it's always sunny and it's nice, but it's not nuanced, the weather. There aren't these clouds scudding across the sky that you feel will bring rain in a couple of hours, or you know, mm. just the sheer detail of the walls. There's a marvelous array in this old castle in Germany that he paints. Marvelous array of different types of wall, crumbling some, some yeah. had painted recently, yeah. all captured so perfectly. Yeah. And, and it, was, it was a really beautiful show, indeed, because it was small and the pictures were arranged in a kind of arc around you when you came in. So it was a delight yes. to, to wander past yes. them. And for me, the only real disappointment was that of this sequence of five paintings he did of this one great castle in Germany, I think the, I think the weakest is the one the National Gallery itself owns, to be honest. It's the one with um, a slightly, slightly unfinished looking foreground. Um, but anyway, as a sequence, fantastic and a great show. Loved it, Bendy. Yeah, well, I'm glad you noticed the, the crumbling walls. When you live in a damp old Scottish house like I do, you, you pay great attention to these things in, in paintings like Bellotto. And I noticed actually that Bellotto was uh, so faithful that when you see a damp old crumbling wall, he takes great care to uh, render accurately the, the state of the guttering above it. 
which has in turn led to the crumbling old walls. So um, he's always telling stories. And um, this show is now in Manchester Art Gallery, so uh, go and see it if you can. Yes, and it, or go to Warsaw and see all the Bellottos in the Royal Castle in Warsaw. They've got a fantastic collection of them there. Brilliant artist. Anyway, quickly on, um, I saw a wonderful show this summer. I think it's still on, actually. I think it's on until the end of January, actually, at the Wallace Collection, Bendor. And it was about Franz Hals, the painter of The Laughing Cavalier, which is one of the most famous paintings in the Wallace Collection. It's about Franz Hals and the male portrait right mm-hmm. so it was a sequence of 20 or less than 20 portraits of men by Franz house with the laughing cavalier at its center and it was just a perfectly judged show i think it was so interestingly and well presented pictures were perfectly chosen but they're also just given enough space to work their magic on you you know this is the thing about spare shows. If you can see a picture properly and have it in front of you for long enough to really get into its details, into the characters of these blokes that Franz House was painting, it's such a difference from what happens, I have to say, elsewhere in the Wallace collection, where things are hung sometimes three, four deep. And, you know, mm. it's, it's, it's a difficult yeah. museum to single things out on. I mean, yeah. even the, there's a Poussin exhibition that they had at the National Gallery, another wonderful exhibition. And the great painting there, the, um, you know, the dance to the music of time, that came from the Wallace collection as well. But suddenly it looked like 10 times the painting it had seemed at the Wallace. So in this exhibition, they've done away with that. And everything's been given lots of space and you can just get involved in the separate characters of this fascinating array of people that Franz Hals has painted. You know, some of them are typical Franz Hals, beery, bloated, beer drinking types. Others are sort of elegant and rather effete, uh, rich people. And there's a few uh, burgermeisters in there and religious types. And of course, the laughing cavalier himself, which is one of those paintings that is so famous. You never really look at it, do you? Not properly, not in a way that feels fresh. But you can do it here and you see just what a, actually what a wonderful picture it is with this extraordinary, I don't know, elusive expression. Is he smiling? Is he not? And the way his clothes are painted. You know, this is the thing about Franz House, dynamite in his fingers, that beautiful wristy touch of his. Um, it's a fabulous picture and altogether a show I cannot recommend highly enough. Get thee to the Wallace Collection. You've got until January the 30th. Fantastic show. Hmm. Where, where did they hang it? Was it upstairs or downstairs? It's downstairs in that exhibition space, which is sort of underneath the restaurant bit of the Wallace yeah. Collection. Yeah. Self-contained space, though. You don't really get a sense of where you are. because Also, the other thing they've done, which I think some people may not like as much as I did, is that they, for some rather absurd reason, they painted the walls in the colours of Mark Rothko paintings. You know the Rothko sequence at the Tate, where the Four Seasons, where everything is sort of purple or kind of maroon coloured, mm. quite deep, vaguely religiously purple sort of moods. Um, that's the backcloth to the Franz House paintings. But, you know, that probably sounds worse than it is. All I can say to you is that when you're in there, you don't notice that. It's just that there's some kind of something about these deep maroon backgrounds helps the house paintings in the foreground sort of sit up and, and get the attention they deserve. Well, Omicron permitting, I will go to London and catch that before it ends on January the 30th. You should. Okay, so that's great. Also great, Bendy, the reopening of the Courtauld. The Courtauld was closed for ages, but unlike the National Portrait Gallery, it's reopened. It's there. And it had a big, big reopening uh, last month, wasn't it? I went along. I was knocked out. I thought it was wonderful. What about you? 
Well, I um, had a sneak peek, actually, because I've for the last ever episode of um, show I make for BBC called Britain's Lost Masterpieces, we were doing a programme on Sir Joshua Reynolds, who was the first president of the Royal Academy. And when he was president of the Royal Academy, the Royal Academy was in Somerset House, which is now the, the Courtauld Galleries. And so we were able to go and do some filming in there just before they'd finished the refurbishment, before they were reopening, um, up in the, the great room at the top of the staircase. You may be able to imagine uh, there's some quite well-known engravings of early Royal Academy shows where everything is sort of hung 10, you know, 10 deep up to the ceiling. And uh, the great room has this amazing... Uh, ceiling light where the light comes in from all four directions and, and the crowds are bizzling underneath looking at all the pictures well until recently until this refurbishment that room was sort of had it been sort of very crudely subdivided and I think even a full ceiling put in uh, and now that's all been done away with and um, so luckily for this program we were able to go and uh, poke our camera through the door and be where Reynolds had stood um, so that was lovely so I didn't see the rest of it I saw the top room I thought they'd done a terrific job um, and I'm looking forward to seeing mm. the rest. Oh, it was great. Yes. I mean, the, the, one of the big things they've done is they've got rid of all the old floorboards. Now, I don't know if you remember the Courtauld, but it had these pine floorboards that always looked as if they'd come out of a Finnish sauna uh, <laughs> bend or yellow and, and, and just wrong. They finally got rid of all those and everything's now this dusted English oak, which suits it all so much better. But yes, of course, that top gallery now filled with masterpieces by Van Gogh, by Gauguin, by Cezanne. It's a relentless delight. It's a fantastic thing to visit. But what was interesting was what's going on underneath, because there are a lot of things in the Courtauld collection that perhaps have been undervalued because it's so famous for its post-impressionism. You tend to forget, for example, how marvellous their collection of, of early Renaissance artists, and I say really early, um, you know, Lorenzo Monaco, Bernardo Daddy, right from the very start of the 15th century, um, the end of the 14th, they've suddenly got a room to themselves. And you're at last able to see something that I have to say, I, I just really never took notice of properly before, which is how wonderful uh, the Courtauld collection is in terms of its richness in these early Renaissance art. And then the other stuff's been hung around the main galleries now. There's a whole Rubens section. Rubens gets a room to himself. They've got an amazing collection of Rubens there, including a fantastic sketch for The Descent from the Cross, his masterpiece in Antwerp. Um, and there's William Dobson, by the way, hanging up there, the young man and old man. That's looking great uh, in the company of, of Rubens, etc. No museum is complete without one. No museum is complete without a William Dobson, although too many somehow or other don't know that. Uh, and then there is this Botticelli, you know, this magnificent Botticelli altarpiece, which they've had restored. Again, I've seen it lots of times at the court. I walked past it, never quite realised what a fantastic painting it is. Um, it's it's a crucifixion, but with, with St. John the Baptist and one of those hairy Marys, you know, Mary Magdalene when she was meant to be in the desert and she grew all his hair to protect her nudity. There's one of those in there as well. Just... It's just impeccably well done. And at first, there's a bit of me that slightly missed the chaos of the old Courtauld. But that didn't last very long. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a triumphant thing. And I would like to promote it loudly here to the rank of number one in our list of um, best exhibitions, if I can call it that. I think that, that Courtauld rebuilding was the best thing that, that, that I saw this year. What about you, Bendy? Um, well, I haven't seen the rest of it, so I, I wouldn't know. I just, the Bellotto has a special place in my heart because it was the first expression I went to 
you know, in that sort of great lull of, of COVID. And I thought, mm. you know, the world was back to normal. And here I was, I was for, for a while, I was only, the only person in the room. It was a magical moment. The only thing I would say about the court order is not at all a, a distraction, is that um, what an irony it is that the great room I was talking about, which was the first shop window for the world of what British art could do, is now filled almost entirely with French paintings. Sorry to sound all Hogarthian there. Yeah, but uh, uh, that doesn't mean anything to me of any significance. Uh, that doesn't matter. It's the best room and it's got the best art in it. And that's all that counts. So I think we're unanimous on that. Uh, at least I'm unanimous on it. The uh, the best <laughs> best exhibition is the reopening of the court. Absolutely magnificent. Everybody listening, you've got to get out there. Uh, back to some some bad news, Bendy. This is an important award. I mean, it, it, it's particularly important this year, I think, during these sort of times of stretched COVID resources. And there is, of course, the, the, the famous Salvador Mundi Award for the biggest waste of money in art. Now, we've had loads of contenders for this, haven't we, this year? I'm going to start off with the most obvious, uh, which is Beeple at Christie's. Now, Beeple, this takes us back into the world of NFTs. He was Mr. NFT. He was a mouthy, snotty American digital artist who made these comic book images. They produced one a day, apparently, for years and years and years. And everybody looked down on him, rightly so, I think. And then he, he put his stuff up at Christie's, of all places. And it's one big sale. His supposed masterpiece of all this stuff put together fetched $69 million. $69 million for a bunch of third-rate digital art scrapings, Bendy. It doesn't get much worse than that, does it? Probably not. But, you know... <laughs> I try to be generous minded in these things and my, my generosity extends to being pleased for people's bank balance. Um, the rest of it, I just don't get. And I think we, we were, we were shocked at the time and our shock has only got, got greater. Um, I'm not sure even, I mean, I just would like to wonder if the NFT craze still seems to be going on, but even within that, notwithstanding, I'm not sure if that people uh, was offered again at auction it would make even half that you know everything is so speeded up these days i think the people moment has been and gone and i think um evidence of that is the but back in um i think our first series we went into uh, another people um nft space we tried to go around that gallery which had uh, 20 of these everyday pictures in um and the people who bought those um, I think for what, something like three or four million dollars. Anyway, they tried to what's called tokenize it, which is sort of um, allow people to buy bits of it. And the idea was that you, you know your investment will, will go up. Um, but actually, um, if you bought one, you'd be you'd be crying into your NFTs at the moment because they've gone through the floor and not really worth much. So I think that really is a waste of money because I'm not sure that people would make that price again. I'm sure he wouldn't. But but on the other hand, you know, if you if you can sell basically thin air to people for millions of quid. You know, there's there's a limitless supply of it, and the auction house is obviously jumping on it with great glee because they want nothing more than a limitless supply they can flog to people. There's a thing recently, and some other artist, uh, was he, is he called Pack? I think a famous NFT artist who broke Beeple's record, by the way, for the sixty-nine million dollars. He he went up to seventy-something million by selling bits of his artwork where it's a bit like you know when when arsenal football ground closed down and they managed to sell bits of the turf off to fans so you could buy a square foot of the turf for a thousand quid or whatever it was this is similar except he got hundreds of thousands of people to spend five six hundred quid each to buy a bit of his masterpiece 
And by the time they finished, it ended up at over $70 million, right? And the thing that got me was that the auction house in question, the, the place where it was being sold, turned it into a kind of video game because what they did was every now and then they would post a list of people who'd spent the most money and by doing so seemingly encourage other people to rise to the top of the list by spending more money and yet more money and it's that sort of manipulation of the whole thing when, when, when money isn't real when art isn't real it's all down to what the computers can get up to isn't it and that sense of buying art turning into a kind of video game where you just press noughts down and up, up went the price to you know a few more millions again it just feels offensive to me um, and it, it allows so much um, untruth to enter the process i think mm. and anyone who's uh, played video games will know how quickly they date and how fast the technology moves on and what i think is um a warning for us all about this uh, this nft moment is that it's all predicated on art that you look at on a backlit screen and i'm just not sure for how much longer we're going to be looking at backlit screens. I think, the, you know, the digital world will move on, whether it's virtual reality, 3D, I don't know what it's going to be, holograms. But um, there will be a point, and it's probably quite soon, where we won't know how to switch these things on anymore. I mean, we've all got drawers at home full of phones mm. that were the latest thing at the time, and we can't turn on anymore. And I think a lot of this art is going to be ending up like that. And if anything, I would like art to, you know, we don't need any more encouragement to look at screens at the moment. So... Let's let's try and shift the central gravity of art back to the real world. Yeah, but do you know what? My prediction, right, is that when NFTs get taken over by the next thing and the thing after that and the thing after that, what we'll end up with is nothing at all except some kind of uh, AI process which delivers the image straight to your brain without you needing to look at anything. So in other words, you won't even need to open your eyes. It'll just yeah. be delivered to your brain as a thing. And you can buy it and spend zillions of pounds, which also don't exist in reality. That, that's the sort of journey we're making, isn't it? Towards a thing where, you know, the, the reality of a great painting, a great sculpture or whatever, just doesn't matter. It'll be like the Matrix, I suppose. But then, you know, I do try and be optimistic about these things. And I think uh, the, the euphoria that you and I, as, as crumbly and reactionary as we are, the euphoria that you and I felt standing in front of those bolotos or those houses, that will always be irreplaceable. And the real world, the real art, will, as it always has done, will last forever. You're so right, Bendy. Sad Bendy and sad Waldy will be <laughs> our little, and sad Taya looking in as producer, will we'll form our sad little coven of people who continue to yearn for real art. But listen, we haven't finished with the uh, Salvador Mundi Award for the biggest waste of money yet. We've got other contenders, remember? Because I mm. want to nominate Winston Churchill, and his dreadful daubs, which have spent the year, <laughs> spent the year inflating crazily to ridiculous sums. And all this kind of climax, didn't it, in the sale at Christie's of, of his Ketubia Mosque, painting of the Ketubia Mosque, supposedly painted when he was uh, having discussions in Morocco with Roosevelt. 8.3 million pounds. 8.3 million pounds for a daub by Churchill. I mean, that's a collapse of values, isn't it? Well, I tried to defend this at the time, and I'm going to try again, but not successfully. I can, I know already. I, I don't think this. It's whether it's a daub or not is irrelevant. It's a historic document. It's this a daub. Was, this was painted as a. This was. I think it's Church's only wartime painting, and it was painted as a gift for Roosevelt as a way of sort of sealing the deal between the great transatlantic partnership to defeat Nazism. So, you know, if you daub. want, if you. If, <laughs> 
daub. Okay, it's a daub. But if you want a piece of canvas to, to signify one of the great moments of the Second World War and in, and in history, then that's it. And there's only one, and it used to belong to Brad Pitt, or was it Angelina Jolie? And Both. if you wanted it, you had to pay eight million quid. So there yeah, you because go. it belonged to Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, it was a daub. Come on, let's just let's just admit it was a daub and move on. <laughs> Go on, say daub, 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 daub. But a very expensive <laughs> one. <laughs> they are. Look very quickly. Um, I've nominated Cy Twombly because I don't get Cy Twombly right. He's an American artist who, for some reason, is extraordinarily popular among collectors. He's a sort of belated abstract expressionist who brings a lot of Greek and Roman mythology into his work. Lived in Italy for the vast part of his, his life. Anyway, the thing is, at Sotheby's in New York this year, one of his big abstracts went for $58.8 million. $58.8. That's such a lot of money. It's such a terrifying amount of money. I mean, you could, you could, you could feed half an African nation with that kind of money. And yet, you know, this, this weak daubist Cy Twombly, whose work I don't get, fetches that. I mean, do, do you know about him at all? Do, do you like his work? I don't. My heart sinks every time I see one. Um, in fact, I was in Munich the other day and I went, I popped into the, the Neuer Pinakothek. Oh. And there's some, you know, nice things there. And I came across a gallery of these things and I just thought, oh, so, so I was just weak, so depressed by them. But, mm-hmm. um, and the, 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 only, the only thing I would have to say about, is it Twombly? Yes, why Twombly. Twombly. Yeah. Um, and the fact that these things make so much money. Um, I noticed once that the auction houses in New York, I can't remember which one it was, but when they sell these, you know, because they're quite repetitious, you get his squiggle paintings, you get his, I don't know, dash paintings, whatever they're called. That's, you see them a lot. I noticed that when they when they sell different versions of the same genre of Cy Twombly, they just cut and paste the text from the last one that they sold. Yeah. And I think that's quite an appropriate metaphor for art that doesn't have much to say. Yeah, and he must be quite difficult to write a new caption about because he's, he doesn't do anything different and they all look the same. But anyway, listen, three weak, weak, terrible moments, big wastes of money. Which is it going to be? Churchill, Twombly or Beeples? Come on, decision time, Bendor. It's got to be the people, hasn't it? It's got, it's got to, to be, be the people. Yeah. It's got to be the people. It's got to be the people. Even worse than Churchill was the people. I have to concur. It's ridiculous. We seem to be agreeing on everything today, uh, Bendor. It's <laughs> unfair, but uh, it would be a lie to say uh, anything other than that. Anyway, that's it almost for the this year's prestigious Wendy's. We've only got one left. But thankfully, it's perhaps the most prestigious of all. And it is, of course, the Woodward and Bernstein Scoop of the Year Award, named, as you know, after the people who broke the Watergate scandal. And the thing about it this year, the, the, the prestigious Woodward and Bernstein Scoop of the Year Award, baby, the thing about it is there's only one contender, and it's me. It's me. Oh. I, I, I am nominating myself for Scoop of the Year, right? All right. Because I Hang am on. the guy. Not yeah, Pippa yeah. Creer of the, of the Mirror and all these Christmas parties. No. None of this is as important no. as, that's nothing to do with art. Mine is a genuine art scoop, right? And it happened nearly uh, a couple of weeks ago. Well, you know, I, I grew up in Reading, right? And um, I'm a big fan of Reading Football Club, but also I support the campaign that's been going on to save Reading Jail. Reading Jail, mm-hmm. where Oscar Wilde was imprisoned, where he wrote De Profundis, a great poem about his time there called The Ballad of Reading Jail, one of the most yeah. quoted poems in the English language. You feel very home in there. 
I feel at home, not so much in the prison, Bendy, but in the environments of the prison, which is this historic centre of Reading where Henry I is buried somewhere, the ruins of a beautiful abbey. Uh, if you haven't been there, that's just a mark of your, your, your ignorance, frankly. You should hurry to Reading as soon as you can to, to find out more British history. Anyway, they wanted to turn this prison, which was stopped being a prison in 2013, I think it was, into something or other. And the question was, is it going to be housing? Or is it going to be an art centre? All the good people in the world wanted it to be an art centre. All the bad people wanted it to be housing. And what should happen um, a couple of weeks ago, right? The problem was that Reading Council, which wanted the, um, the thing to become an art centre, didn't have enough money. So in the auction that, that, that had gone round, they bid 2.7 million and they were outbid by other developers, the people who wanted to put the houses in by many millions. So they were short of money, but their bid was still on the table. But who should pop up to help them out but Banksy, the graffiti artist, Banksy. Okay. Banksy suddenly put up uh, a stencil, which is the, the sort of the thing he uses to make his artworks, of something he'd done on the walls of Reading Jail, which is this image of a prisoner escaping with a typewriter. You inevitably think it might sort of represent symbolically Oscar Wilde. Mm -hmm. And he put the stencil up for sale and... I mean, even a conservative estimate for that would be that it would fetch something like 10 to 15 million pounds in auction because Banksy's go for loads and loads of money. And this was the rarest thing possible, a Banksy stencil. And it was me who broke that news that Banksy was donating his stencil and the proceeds of its sale to the campaign to turn Reading Jail uh, into an art centre rather than the block of flats. I broke that news in the Sunday Times and I don't think there's been an art scoop this year that, that can rank with that. I mean, come on, 10 to 15 million quid from Banksy to help Reading out and give it an art centre. Isn't that great news? Great scoop, Wally. What sleuthing you did there. Um, <laughs> uh, and so is that a done deal now? Are they, are they going to buy it? That's no, it. no, there's still loads and loads of problems um, oh. because Banksy's way of operating and the council's way of operating are not the same way of operating. So there are ways in which he has to get the money to them that it, it can be used properly and it's still complicated but the point is he popped up and he made this extraordinary gesture i got a quote from him i i, I communicated with him and all did that. you have to go and see him in a dark car park with with masks on I, I didn't have to do that but i did do a bit of sleuthing around his show um and um uh, there was a lot of, of shush shushing going on in the whole process but you should read the article it's in the sunday times big scoop Banksy, 10 to 15 million quid, Reading Jail, unquestionably the Woodward and Bernstein scoop of the year in the art world, I think. Yeah, congratulations. Do, yeah. Does, does Banksy have a Reading connection? or is he? Is... No, interestingly enough, when I, when, um, I asked for a quote as to what, why he'd done all this, and he said um, that um, he was travelling to London from you know, Bristol, which is where he comes from, you know, travelling to Bristol uh, on a rail replacement bus, right? So the yeah. rail had broken down somewhere and he's on a rail replacement bus and the rail replacement bus went past reading jail right? right and he said um and he suddenly saw this 500 foot of fantastic encircling wall completely bare with nothing on it and he thought oh i've got to paint something on that that's the yeah. best wall i've seen in the middle of town for ages uh -huh. so he sort of clambered over the person next to him on the bus and sort of took a photo and that's what inspired his original bit of graffiti on the wall and it's what really moved him the uh, the rail replacement situation Okay. Sweet. Well, let's hope for a happy ending. 
let's hope indeed um, anyway uh, it's a show in then the uh, my scoop about banksy in reading jail is the winner of the bernstein and woodward all oh, right so there's a, a short a short list of one that's... a short list of one yeah yeah okay. that's all you need for that one that's all yeah. you need for that. Right, right. um bendy listen we've talked on and on about all these um i think that's that that's that this this year i think for the wendy's um we've had good winners bad winners um and a cornucopia of, of all sorts of winners Everybody wants a Wendy, don't they? But only the lucky few get one. So let's finish on that marvellous, uplifting thought. Uh, Bendy, so that's nearly it from us for uh, 2021. There's just one bow left to tie on the Wardy and Bendy Christmas special. And that's our Christmas on the wall. Uh, where, Bendy, you and I imagine what we'd like to have on our walls. If we could have anything we wanted. Uh, and I mean anything. On the wall. Yes, Bendy on the wall. Um, here we are. It's the bit of the, the program we always love best, don't we? Where you just get to choose anything, fantasy time. So what have you gone for this time? For the Christmas and New Year special, what's your special pick? Well, I've gone for one of those paintings which you look at. And this one was painted about 500 years ago. It's one of those things you look at and you just think, my God. Every artist ever since then might as well have just packed up and gone home because Albrecht Altdorfer, who painted this picture, basically, as far as I can see, cracked it uh, in 1529. I'm talking about his picture of the Battle of Alexander the Great at Issus. And this is a large oil on panel which belongs to the Alta Pinacothek in Munich. Have you seen this painting, Mark? I have seen it. I've seen oh, it more than once. Out. Let me describe it for the listeners. Um, it is a swirling mass in the foreground of troops, uh, infantry, uh, cavalrymen uh, rushing forward. There's probably depicted, I don't know, maybe uh, thousands and thousands of minutely depicted little soldiers. And they are uh, Alexander the Great's forces uh, defeating those of Darius III of Persia. The Battle of Issus was fought in 333 BC. And then as we move up, in the middle of the picture, we have a, um, a castle on a mountain, and then that recedes into a, a, a beautiful, an amazing, extraordinary landscape of a lake um, and a, a, a seemingly endless mountain range before we get to a swirling sky with a, a great broody sunset on the right and a moon up on the left. Um, and the, uh, the thing that just amazed me most about this is, is just, the, first of all, the technique and the action. But the landscape is extraordinary because uh, Albrecht Altdorfer was really one of the first people to, to, to properly and accurately depict landscape for its own sake in art. And, and I know that you're a keen mountaineer, Wild, and you like to, nothing more than to a rapid scramble up the top of an Alp. Uh, but the view that Altdorfer has, has painted here uh, you can tell that he's, uh, and he lived near the Alps in Bavaria, you can tell that he has been up some huge peak and has basically been awestruck and decided, I must paint this. And he has done that. And to do that in 1529, I think, is is just a, quite an extraordinary achievement. And I think uh, the dramatic sky and the battle here, it, it all feels... It could be, you know, the battle against Omicron, couldn't it? And I think I'd like this on my wall just for a little bit of time during this, what is hopefully the last gasp of this terrible pandemic, uh, because I think it captures the mood of the moment uh, and hopefully will lead to our ultimate victory. Oh, Bendy. 
I know the painting quite well, actually. I've seen it a few times uh, in, in Munich because um, it's 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 in the next gallery to the Durers, isn't it? That's right. And and so you know you can't miss it. It's a sensational painting, absolutely fascinating thing. Um, every time I've seen it, it's it's knocked me out. Um, what what's I mean? There's two things about it I think are remarkable. One, I mean, you you say he painted it from the top of an Alp. I mean, basically, it's what we call a bird's eye view today, isn't it? Mm. It, it might almost almost be a drone shot above the army, yeah. you know, above these massive sort of ranks of soldiers. Um, I mean, that's just such a remarkable thing to do at such an early date to imagine. I mean, there must be even if he has stood on top of an Alp. In this instance, he's he's had to have been imagining something that happened in the past, and to imagine it as if you're looking down on it from way above is an extraordinary feat of imagination. I think so. That's remarkable. And then the way that the the fight has been painted, you know, as I, as I remember it, it, it's almost like, you know, did you do that experiment at school where you've got iron filings and you've got a magnet and you sort of <laughs> move the magnet and all the iron filings will sort of go in one direction or another. Yes. It's a bit like that. It's as if the armies, which of course in detail, you can look in and see very clearly that each one represents a soldier. But in, in the big sense of the picture, it's like this sort of swirly cosmic storm of iron filings, one set fighting against another. And there's not another picture like it, is there? I mean, I don't, recall no. seeing anything yeah, like this before yeah. or after um it's an absolute one-off and uh we underestimate uh, not just outdorfer but the you know the german renaissance in general the extraordinary art that was pouring out of germany in in yeah. the late 14th 15th 16th century there was just a lot of it was really remarkable yeah. and i think it's one of the stories that needs to be told um, actually more vocally in our art uh, just how interesting that period was an outdorfer yeah. who although of course he's well known but he's not really well known enough i think here no. um deserves deserves far more attention yeah. i think a lot, a lot of the responsibility is that it falls on that generation of, of artists or people like you know one of my great heroes kenneth clark mm. who uh, uh, because of the first and second world war had a was really down on all things German, from literature to, to art to music. And um, in his famous series of civilization, he, when he could bring himself to talk about Dürer, you know, he commented that art from this period onwards was, was I think he called it, it's, it's essentially destructive, because that fitted into the narrative later on of, of uh, 20th century German mm. history under the Nazis. So, the, you know, this is, uh, this is another one of those pendulums that art history needs to push back. And so those artists, you know, the, we might as well call it the German Renaissance. We call it the Northern Renaissance, but you know, my goodness, what a what a Southern German Renaissance there was. Uh, they, these Sorry. people contributed to art history in such an astonishing way, yeah. and and this man Albert Altdorfer and his colleagues in the what's called the Danube School, mm. you know, uh, you can trace so much of Western landscape painting right back to that little handful of people in Southern Germany. In about 1500 and what and it's not just painting you know this was the great era of printmaking you know of mm -hmm. course there have been printmakers before but it was Schongauer, Dürer, Altdorfer these were the people that introduced this whole idea you know allied to the fact that, that printing had emerged at the same time more or less Gutenberg you know making this sort of democratic availability of art in so printmaking enormous steps forward woodcuts, engravings, and in so many other areas of art. And you see, it, it can't just be that everybody hated the Germans because of, because of the war. I mean, the Italians were on the wrong side as well, but you don't hear people 
taking a pop at Michelangelo or Leonardo because they were Italian, do you? <laughs> you know, and, and I think it's it's this art historical decadent taste for the Campania of Italy, the Prosecco, the Spaghetti Vongole. Basically, British art history liked to spend the summer in Tuscany and they got intoxicated by it. They were never going to spend the summer in Nuremberg. Um, and so it all added up to this taste for a luxurious bathing type of Renaissance art. And it led to miscalculations and misobservations, I think, and yeah. an ignoral of, of some of the most, some of the greatest art ever made, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. And Altdorfer certainly ranks in, in, that, in that grouping. Yeah. I don't think I, it's going to take me a long time to recover from my first trip to the Alta Pinacotheca in Munich, where I went a few weeks ago. Um, never having been before and, you, and so many famous images you think you know from reproductions yeah. and yet when, when you go around there they just knock you out as if you've never seen them before masterpiece after masterpiece by the end of it I needed a rest it was just too much I, I love going there as well. And uh, do you know what I particularly like as well? There's a lot of anonymous painters, you know, people who are called something like, you know, the master of the Bernardo altarpiece or the, uh, and so often they're fantastic. Yeah. And you think, wow, this person never got a name, you know, they never quite identified, became as famous as, as Durer or Altdorfer. But what talent, what skill, you know, and wow, what else have they done? Where can I find out about them? There's this very rich open territory there still, I think. But, and it's a shame, really, that, that lots more art history isn't being devoted to that. Because, I mean, let's face it, we've, we've, we've pretty much done the Italian Renaissance to death. We know everything, I think, that we're ever going to know about it. There's so much stuff still lying in the soil in, in, in Germany, in Flanders, mm. yeah. in Holland. Fantastic period. I'm so excited. I want to go back there tomorrow. But instead, Bendy, uh, I'm actually going nowhere, right? Because... I have chosen for my on the wall something unusual in that it is on my wall. It's actually something I've got at home. And the reason I've selected it is because I owe it all to you. Now, in the summer, you incredibly kindly wrote to me, you emailed and said, oh, Waldy, there's something coming up that might interest you. And it's got links to William Dobson. Now, everybody knows how I feel about William Dobson. He's my numero uno British artist. I've been trying for decades to buy something by him and never can afford him, never can find him. So I thought, hmm, what's that? And, uh, and of course, I opened it up, went to the auction site, and there was this beautiful um, version of uh, a William Dobson painting, one of his great cavalier portraits done during the Civil War in England, of a cavalier hero standing there with his helmet, um, standing by a column with a fight going on behind him. Typical, great uh, bit of Dobson straight out of the V&A as it happens, which is where the picture, the original picture hangs at the moment. So that exists, this Dobson painting, I love it. So what's this thing that you pointed me towards? Well, it's a replica of it on a small scale, probably, and this is something I owe to you again, because you made the suggestion, probably, by John Linnell. Now, John Linnell uh, was an outstanding English, mostly landscape painter at the beginning of the 19th century, but he also did copies of old masters on little copies on wood, which he sort of used to train himself up and get better. And it seems pretty conclusive to me that, that this is a John Linnell copy of one of Dobson's great cavalier pictures, which, as according to my research, 
was probably done either at or around the occasion of the Manchester Art Treasures Exhibition, which is this sort of celebrated Victorian event when Britain was sort of puffing out its chest and saying, uh, we've got all these great art treasures here in Manchester, come and look at them. And the Dobson, I later found out, was actually one of the pictures on show there. So I think this is what it is. Um, the point is, it was, first of all, incredibly generous of you not to bid for it because it went for a pittance, really, compared with what it's worth. I got it incredibly cheaply. Um, it's the nearest I'm ever going to come to having a Dobson. It's a John Linnell, who's a fantastically interesting painter anyway. And it's hanging on my wall as a real thing and allowing me to dream of the Dobsons I don't own. So really, it's to thank you, Bendy, for that, because um, it's, it's the best thing I got this year. And it's given me nothing but enormous pleasure. Oh, well, I'm so pleased. Well, it's really made my day that you, you got it and that you love it. Um, and it's a nice picture. And, uh, but, but be on notice, it's only the amuse-bouche in our journey to get you a genuine William Dobson. Somewhere out there, lurking away in a little catalogue, auction catalogue, will be the greatest Dobson sleeper ever. And we'll find it and you will get it. Oh, Bendy. Is that a promise for next year then, or maybe the year after, or the year after that? Yeah, and if that's not a reason to stay my friend, then I don't know what is. You're absolutely right. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to drift off now into the ecstasies that you've just pushed me into. Do we have to finish there? That's the end of the uh, Aldi and Bendy Christmas and New Year special. We've done everything we could. We've interviewed some people. We've gone through the year. We've picked out the best and the worst. And we've even played the singing art critics and their Christmas song. And indeed, so rapturously was that received... I think we'll have to play it again, don't we? So let's see everybody out with yet more of the singing art critics and their Christmas song. In the meantime, ho, 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 it's bye-bye from me. And cheerio and Merry Christmas from me. Let you down. Come on, come on, it's Christmas. Santa is on his way. The taste is looking merry, and so is the piano. Tracy has laid the table, delighted by Martin Creed. Damien stuffed the turkey, and the Chapmans did the tree. Christmas comes around. Come on, come on, it's Christmas. Santa is on his way. The date is looking merry, and so is the Vianney. Tracy has laid the table, the likes of I, Martin Creed. Damien stuffed the turkey, and the Chapmans did the tree. January.
So come on, come on, it's Christmas. Santa is on his way. The date is looking merry, and so's the DNA. Tracy has laid the table, the lights are by Martin Creed. They 